0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Woo, we got a show for you today. Uh, we are tack- we're tackling issues that actually a lot of people should be talking about. But most of the media aren't, and that is the job of this channel slash podcast. It is to talk about things which are not getting the discussion uh, that is, I think, requisite. Now, later on, we're going to be talking to the brilliant author, uh, Manisha Rajesh. Now, this is about, I don't know if people have been following this. It's a fascinating example of so-called cancel culture, uh, where, I mean, cancel culture normally works like this. Somebody who is extremely privileged goes on a very, very, very loud national tour, TV, radio, videos, broadcasts, newspaper articles, features, explaining how they've been silenced um, from the biggest megaphone uh, possible in the country. This is a case of Kate Clancy, who uh, wrote a lot of overtly racist passages in her books. Uh, A reviewer pointed it out. Kate then denied she'd written them, piled on the reviewer, uh, when women of colour spoke out, uh, they were then subject to vitriolic abuse, racism, um, and threats of violence. Um, but Kate Clancy is the one who's been martyred. So it's really important to talk about that because there's lots of themes involved in that, which are very important. But what we're going to be talking about first today is the official British Equalities Watchdog is the Equalities Human Rights uh, Council. And the EI- e- EHRC has been embroiled in a big, big uh multiple scandals now. This comes after they U-turned on trans rights and essentially pressured the Scottish Government to reverse its position. The Scottish Government looking at implementing reforms which many other countries across the world have already implemented for many years without problems. And now we're going to put this in context because we have, I would say, the best LGBTQ journalist in the country joining us, to talk exactly about these scandals which he has uncovered, let's bring in Ben Hunt, who is <laughs> <She was> senior. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Boo!
2: <laughs> just like that. Not That's yet. Good. I was
1: waiting. I was waiting. Yeah. I was like, when can I just get him? when he's just slightly. <laughs> okay. um, I was
2: brushing dust off myself. Apologies for joining you from this house build. It's literally you're just very just dapper.
1: Down. I was told before I had to put a shirt on, partly because you look so dapper, and I was told that I look like I would just get oh, out of right. bed. So this is for me. This is pretty smart. I'm quite proud of this. You're looking good. I like it. I mean, it's as good as I'm going to get. Um, this is of course Ben is senior reporter at Vice. Used to be at the BBC, yes. uh, and has been doing absolutely phenomenal work at Vice on LGBTQ issues, which the media is simply the rest of the media simply is not doing its job on. So Ben, I just want to start. Let's just start. Let's just start because yeah. just a bit of just before I do, just a bit of context for the HRC because it's already before this for those who'd been watching, there'd been controversy. So this was actually reported in The Guardian, uh, and it was about the politicization of the HRC, five controversial uh, appointments, people appointed by the Conservative government, who, I mean, variously, for example, had been giving donations to the Conservative Party, mm. uh, who uh, have written stuff denying... Uh, talking about how we, it's not right to expect the UK to live up to an unrealistic standard where every individual is non-racist, uh, just denouncing the racism charge. Uh, David Goodhart, who's saying the hostile environment shouldn't be watered down after the Windrush scandal. We could go on. And Ooh. actually the former chair um, of the HRC says that it's been undermined by pressure to support number 10 agenda. Now, as I've said, they came and intervened on the issue of Scotland introducing reforming the gender recognition process. Just quickly just sum that up. What, what what have they you turned on and what was the response from LGBTQ organisations?
2: Okay. So the first thing to remember is that so much has happened in such a short space of time. So 2018, I was stood in Downing Street, in the garden, in the party with like Theresa May and lots of other LGBT organisations and charities and stuff. And we were all talking about this LGBT act, It's Document, this thick, junky document that was ultimately going to change the lives of LGBT people across the world. And there were this list of things that the Conservative government were going to be doing to improve things. That was like bringing marriage to Northern Ireland, um, same sex marriage to Northern Ireland, uh, helping with homelessness, and with mental health issues, all of this different stuff. And one of the biggest ones was around the Gender Recognition Act. So changing it up, uh, making things better for trans people, making it a simpler process for trans people to identify as themselves legally Uh, and what you saw was the EHRC in 2018 really get behind that the EHRC was leading on documents and guidance and policies saying that trans people should have an easier time uh, just being themselves until now uh, suddenly we've had a change of government we've had a change of uh, the government appointed leaders of the EHRC and suddenly actually they're saying no uh, the Scottish government should hold off on any changes. Uh, of course, this is a devolved issue. So it's something that England and Wales and Scotland are dealing with separately. So Scotland actually was just like, forget England and Wales. We're going to push on with these changes to the Gender Recognition Act and, and bringing in these, these rights for trans people. Uh, and effectively, the EHRC has just said, no, don't do that.
1: And it's interesting because a series of organisations like the LGBT uh, Foundation, they've said they're severing all ties with the HRC stonewall which is of course our main civil rights organization for lgbtq people which has been victimized and attacked in the press of of, of late we're deeply concerned by further reports within the hrc that the board and senior staff are acting against the interests of lgbtq people now let's bring in your first story um britain's equalities watchdog met privately with anti-trans groups what's the story there
2: okay so effectively the first story was finding that leaked emails and documents showing senior leaders at the EHRC have literally worked to erase trans rights uh <laughs> I don't even know how else to put it like they've actively worked on cases that have prevented trans people from living their lives um and just getting on as as trans individuals and this story was uh as, as I was incredibly proud to have a number of people reach out to me for this one. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Steph's Place, Steph there and Claire, who have done some incredible work digging on freedom of information requests, uh, leaking documents and uh, a variety of different things came from other sources as well. And it all came together into this one article, this one report, uh, effectively showing that there's some significant bias happening at an organization that's ultimately supposed to be pushing for the progression of rights for minorities.
1: So, what the HRC said? The HRC got in touch with me in uh, in up to just before the show, um, and they've said uh, on this that uh, what well, they said the HRC is not anti-trans, nor its staff, including its uh, senior leaders. Let me just put the statement up. Um, we take pride in our diverse workforce. Um, they said uh, where rights may conflict, our role is to advise on striking the appropriate balance. And they say, we operate an open-door policy and listen to engage with all stakeholders and staff whose views reflect the whole spectrum of opinion. So they're they're saying, well, we're meeting these groups, but, you know, we've got an open-door policy. What's interesting about your story, though, is, Mm -hmm. for example, they open up a private line of communication. And is that the same open-door policy which is applied to mainstream LGBTQ organisations which have existed
3: for years?
2: Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So we know for a fact... Uh, that the chair, Baroness Faulkner, had had personal private meetings with the leaders of organisations who have been accused of being anti-trans. And I think I saw so much on Twitter on the day that this uh, came out on Wednesday, saying that, oh, but these organisations aren't anti-trans, they're just defending the rights of women. And I was specifically... Calling out those people within this article. So I can tell that people didn't read the whole thing because within it, we've showed that actually the stuff that they were saying to the EHRC and leaders within it was transphobic. So we can look at um the LGB Alliance was one of the organizations that was invited to speak with the board. And the LGB Alliance, uh, I think it was Fair Play for Women and Stonewall. So effectively two organizations that uh, have said anti-trans things previously, uh, and one organization that's defending the rights of LGBTQ people across the world, Europe's largest LGBTQ uh, charity organization. And the LGB Alliance in this meeting um, with the board claimed that, let me see if I can just find it. Um, Okay, so they claimed (laughs) the founders of this organization called Transitioning Horrifying, saying it leads to a life of infertility, loss of sexual feeling, continuous medication, and appalling surgery. That's transphobic. They also said the NHS is carrying out medical experiments on children, adding, we don't need to go into much detail about all of this because Alistair Henderson, on your board, will be able to explain all about it. That's transphobia. And this is them speaking to the bosses, the leaders of an organisation that's supposed to be pushing for human rights across the country. Uh, And then on Fair Play for Women, uh, this is, I think it's Nicola Williams, uh, the leader of that, and she's previously refused to call trans women women, calling them males instead. That's transphobia. Literally, according to the, the laws that the Human Equality and Human Rights Commission is supposed to be upholding the Equality Act, that is transphobia. That literally goes against the law. So it's, it's scary that, well, some people have said that it's scary that this organization does seem to have a bias of sorts uh, when it comes to trans issues uh, and lives. The other thing I think is, is worth flagging as well is that as a result of this story, I'm sure we'll come on to the second one in a minute, yeah. but the yeah. minute that this report went out, my emails were blowing up. My hotline was blinging. The mm-hmm. amount of people that were contacting me from the EHRC speaking about their experiences was absolutely wild. Mm-hmm. And that makes it even wilder for me to see that the EHRC did put out this tweet defending and uh, the integrity of their leaders on that same day. I'm not sure if you got that tweet though.
1: Oh, no, we should have done that, actually. Good point. Um, we get... <laughs> no worries. I, I'll, come, I'll, I'll read it out, Charlie, though. Before we come on to the second story, Alistair Henderson, you mentioned this guy. Who is he? Yeah.
2: So, Alistair Henderson is a barrister. Um, he is also on the board. Uh, he was appointed in 2018, I believe. So, this is actually before uh, Baroness Faulkner, but still government appointed. And Henderson uh, was involved in the Bell v. Tavistock case. Um, The case that ultimately led to the NHS removing gender care from trans young people. Um, I've been told it actually hasn't been reinstated, even a year after uh, that decision was overturned. uh, And it was said that it should never have gone to court in the first place. Trans young people still actually can't get gender care, apparently. I haven't checked into that. Um, But some parents of trans young people were telling me that they still haven't been able to get appointments again booked through the NHS, which is quite scary. Uh, And this is someone that ultimately is on the board uh, of this organisation pushing for Equality, apparently, for trans people. Uh, the second thing that I uncovered within this, uh, within this uh, report, which is also from uh, documents from Steph's Place, was around Alistair Henderson uh, pushing for the EHRC to intervene in the Maya Forstiter case, uh, a case where a woman was, uh, she found that her contract was not renewed at work uh, as a result of what she said was her gender critical beliefs. Uh, she effectively called, I think it was, she called trans women men. Uh, And as a result of that, or she said that they're not women. Uh, And then it was assistance from the EHRC that potentially could have actually got this case to conclude in favour of people that are gender critical. And it was celebrated by people who are transphobic. Um, So it's it's, these are really interesting times to see that government appointed uh, officials on these organisations seem to hold very interesting positions in regard to trans rights. Very interesting.
1: And I should say, we're going to shortly speak to the brilliant uh, trans activist, uh, Katie Montgomery, also a YouTuber, um, about some of these issues in detail. Let's bring in your second story. Wrong uh, yeah. one. We've already done that one. This is the one. Staff are quitting Britain's equality watchdog, the HRC, due to transphobia. So tell me what happened. You said your phone blew up. What are the kind of experiences that people working at the HRC have told you about?
2: My goodness, so I've been speaking to people who have literally been crying on the phone to me about their experiences at the EHRC. These are people who have been pushing for human rights all of their lives. They've wanted to work for organizations that are pushing for the rights of minority groups. And they effectively ended up somewhere where they didn't feel supported to do so. Uh, They said, one person said that there was a complete U-turn, a complete switch that occurred when Baroness Faulkner came in uh, as chair, was appointed chair uh, by Liz Truss, and an organization admittedly that uh, did look into her and interview her, but she's been appointed nonetheless whilst potentially holding some uh, gender-critical views. It's, this story um, was all about people's experiences. It was all about staff speaking up. We had three whistleblowers from within the organisation who were putting their careers on the line, leaking documents to us, showing us what they've gone through whilst there. We also had, uh, I think it was around eight people who had left the organisation. One just left yesterday, um, on Friday even. Uh, A few had left uh, over the past few weeks and several more leaving over the next few months. And they've all said exactly the same thing, that they'd seen documents that they were working on changed by the board. So they'd finished documents, they'd been working on them for ages, sent them up to the board for approval, and they came back completely different. (laughs) <laughs> completely changed some said that there's an anti-lgbtq culture that's been adopted at the ehrc some people said that uh, decisions that had been made whilst they were in the ehrc had then been u-turned on such as the scottish gra uh, some people said that they had flagged these things to uh, other people within the organization other senior people not necessarily on the board and then within minutes had had their laptops shut they have no access to the laptop anymore and no access to these documents that they were working on. So it's quite wild to then see that there's been silence and tumbleweed from UK media on these reports coming out because I think they're quite significant. Uh, and for me, going into this, I hadn't really heard of the EHRC, to be honest, apart from um, their uh, intervention in labour things. Uh, I hadn't really heard of them. And to suddenly see that this organisation is supposed to be pre- preventing... Uh, ethnic minorities, preventing uh, trans people, LGBTQ people from discrimination and harassment is actually discriminating and potentially harassing them. Wild.
1: Ben, just quickly, this is odd because I'm coming through my (laughs) producer's account because uh, our Wi-Fi went down, so I'm just going to finish up, just quickly, as we log back in. No worries. No worries. It's, it's It's like GB news just finally as i as i logged back in just finally on the issue of media coverage why has there been such silence on this issue in your opinion I mean, when
2: you find that out, please let me know, please. Uh, so on the day that the second report came out, uh, I did have a, a quick message around some of my LGBTQ friends who are a number of different media organizations. And I said, just so you know that like, this is happening, like, no, I'm not pushing you to cover it. I'm not I'm not expecting coverage, but just so you know like, that this, this is happening. And all of them came back and said, oh my goodness, like how, how the EHRC, like, is an organisation supposed to be uplifting and defending the rights, uh, defending human rights like, across the world? How How is this a thing? Um, but then it still didn't really lead to anything. There's been coverage from Pink News, there's been coverage from LBC and yourself. This is the second thing that I've been asked to be involved in on it. Usually with a story on this level, like, it would be... A number of different journalists, uh, a number of editors even, that would reach out to find out more information. They would ask for sources. They would ask for data, like the documents, uh, the Freedom of Information Request stuff, like all of it. And that was all ready, like I've compiled it, ready to send to whoever wanted to see it uh, in order to do their own reports or their own digging. And nothing, literal tumbleweed. And it's, it's quite surprising to me because this, I understand um, where things are at with trans rights in the UK media. I've got a story coming out um, quite soon about it, but it's, it's still very sad to see that a story of this level, or even two stories of this level within one week doesn't even get a comment box from from a politician or a a commentator or anything. There's literally just been nothing. Uh, I have to give a shout out again to the SNP. John Nicholson of the SNP uh, added his comment to the second uh, report. So that was on Friday. But apart from him, I've seen a number of Scottish uh, politicians who have spoken up, a number of different MSPs, who wanted to put their words into the article and uh, tweeted a number of different things about it. But apart from that, I'm like, where's Labour? Where's the Conservatives, like, I haven't seen anything. Uh, and this is literally the organisation that's supposed to be uplifting human rights.
1: We're ben, now. I'm back after that technical disaster. Hacked <laughs> into by the gender-critical paramilitary <laughs> man. Decided to take on, took my Wi-Fi down. Um, ben, that was fantastic. We're really, you're... The, such a busy guy. Your work is absolutely incredible. So we're just lucky that we've got you here to talk about in detail. Do follow Ben on Twitter. You can see his handle if you're watching live. It's at Ben in Ldn. That's London. That's where we are. Yeah. So uh, Ben, yeah. that's where we are. Uh, there's more to come on this story. So keep your eyes peeled because. Wait, we're... can I
2: give a shout out as well? Can I give a shout out? Yes so because there's more to come um journalism is obviously very powerful we can only do it as a result of people speaking up i'm incredibly humbled by the fact that people do go through horrific things and then think i need to tell ben about this and that's amazing but on this story especially i'd really ask if you do know someone who's working for the ehrc or you know someone who's left the ehrc please do encourage them to speak up if that's you then please i encourage you to speak up Uh, you can contact me on social media at ben and ldn you can drop me an email at ben.hunt with an on the end at vice.com but please do speak up there is so much more that's happening in the organization not just uh, reflecting trans lives but also on ethnic minorities there's so many stories uh, that I've had in my emails and my dms about black individuals um and the way that the EHRC has been dealing with race uh, but also with disability um with sex in general like what what is going on so yeah please do speak up but thank you so much for covering this, Owen, as well. I really, really no, appreciate it. No, no,
1: it's it. a huge honour. And as I said, all LGBTQ people and our allies are very lucky to have um, a brilliant investigative journalist like yourself who yeah. is covering stories that should be covered by other news organisations but aren't. But take care, Ben. Have a lovely Sunday. It's thank great. you. See you later. See you later. Um, before I bring in the brilliant Katie, um, as long as my Wi-Fi doesn't implode, I should have nationalised the, this is where we've ended up with, this is what happens. Just say was it so so much of an ask? Um EHR, so we've got this statement, which I've already partly put up, but where they claim impartiality is a core view value of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Um that their independence and impartiality non-negotiable, protected in statute. They make decisions independently of government. Um, that uh it, they have 13 commissioners, all of whom have knowledge and experience of the areas covered by the Equality Act. Um and they said they've got an increase in turnover in exit interviews. Most staff say they're leaving for a job on promotion to pursue their career development. Now, just on that, it's important we put, I've put two the both statements up already and read from them. It, the staff have told Ben reasons why they've quit. So several are quitting because of an anti lgbtq culture at EHRC. That's what they say, and obviously we believe what they say over what the EHRC uh, are telling us. Um, equally, on the issue of the board, I've already read this out, but we've got, for example, uh, commissioners who've made donations to the Conservative Party, uh, who have, in the case of David Goodhart, and it's just a joke, to be honest with you, as I've said, arguing the hostile environment measure shouldn't be watered down in the wake of the Windrush scandal, that white self-interest isn't the same as racism, um, and Jessica Butcher, who said that modern feminism disempowers women in a 2018 talk, she said feminism, like other forms of identity politics, has become obsessed with female victimhood. So I read out the EHR statement, but having read out the politics of people appointed to the official equalities watchdog, I think it's fair for people to draw their conclusions. Now, before I bring in Katie, I'm sorry about my voice, by the way. Blimey, we're really at the walls today. Um, it, it's it's not COVID probably um maybe i'll do another lateral just in case i don't think it is um but i uh, i am persevering but also do click as i said if you're watching click on the youtube link and press like and subscribe and also don't forget our podcast now we're going to bring in the fantastic the phenomenon that is katie montgomery hi hi yeah uh, katie if i disappear just keep going Take yep. this role. I think that's what we've learned. Just go on I'm a talking, rant. Just go on a rant. I've put on uh, another laptop on her personal on a on a hot just in case the Wi-Fi yeah. disintegrates again.
4: And, well, yeah, good luck on that.
1: Yeah. Mm. Me and Katie um uh tried to behave ourselves last night. Katie's in Bristol, I'm in London. But um I think you look a lot fresher than I do, but <laughs> um,
4: yeah well I, I I had lots of water I've had like six pints of water since I got in the taxi last night so I think that's the key yep <laughs>
1: same here that's how we're going to get through this I just want to start what's your reaction to that story
4: I think it's horrifying really like the idea that the I mean it's like the main human rights organisation in the UK as just like quite openly being anti-LGBT because I know you've covered the the thing about them opposing the GRA reform Ah, uh, which is ridiculous, and they haven't given a single valid reason for. they only ever say concerns because there isn't any legal argument against it, there isn't any safety argument against it, but also they've they came out at the same time opposing the conversion therapy ban in some degree um so this isn't just trans people, you know it's anti lgbt people, and it's it's scary because these they're respected and they have like a you know an international um credibility, and they're campaigning against our rights. Like, I, I don't even really know how to respond to that really. Cause um, it, yeah, it's just terrifying. It's terrifying that people will look at this and they'll just take it on its word because of its reputation. Uh, and that will let them do all kinds of damage to our rights.
1: I mean, I think it was quite striking um, that and a lot of people watching or listening to this might not know this, but the Council of Europe actually issued a, they a voted to pass, um, a, a report the
4: day before.
1: This is the this point, ha- really yeah. interesting. The day yeah. before, so they put Britain in the same bracket as those well known bastions of human rights <laughs> Turkey, Russia, um, and Hungary, Hungary and
4: Poland. Yeah, and Poland.
1: Uh, in terms of uh, where things are going backwards for LGBTQ people, and they specifically, in the case of Britain, um, zoned in on the anti-trans campaign, the which had... movement. exactly. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? Because let's put this in the broader context. This, the, EHR, this, like this has to be poor. And it's interesting because the anti-trans movement talk about institutional capture by the big bad trans rights lobby. though yeah. so it's this big powerful. Um, secret uh, organisation running the country. This is institutional capture and it's an example of what the Council of Europe is talking about.
4: I mean, this is like it's classic projection, isn't it? They just go on oh, you've been captured, you've been captured, like by human rights experts and by LGBT people fighting for their own rights. And then they go on and do this like, the capturing um, by installing people who are like campaigning against human rights into human rights positions. Um, So yeah, I think they're just telling us loudly what they're going to do by accusing us of it in advance um but yeah the the council of europe's position i i just i i really appreciate them doing that because you know loads of people who talk to me from different countries i talk to lgbt people from around the world all the time and one of the things they always ask me is why is the uk so bad in the last few years particularly for trans people but you know anti-lgbt sentiment in general is rising and like uh, the uk has the nickname turf island um which is because the gender critical movement here is so strong and our entire media from left to right uncritically will publish their nonsense or just make up stories about trans people all the time. And it's like in other countries, sure they have things like Fox news in the USA, which will do the same thing, but then they have the other side of the media, which will oppose it. And they have all these big arguments about it in the UK. It's just like wall to wall garbage. And um, it was good for the council of Europe to like notice that and officially uh, you know, state that because it is scary. You know, hate crimes are rising here and small, like the GRA has been so blown out of proportion. It's utterly ridiculous um, how this tiny law, which isn't going to affect hardly anyone, uh, is, is been made into this big national argument about trans people and is used, being used as a springboard to campaign to remove more of our rights. Um, yeah, it's, I, it is good that the Council of Europe has called them out.
1: I mean, it's it's really interesting this issue on gender recognition because I uh, mean, this is a point made forcefully by lots of trans writers and trans campaigners, which is what happened was is the Women and Equality Select Committee issued a report with suggestions for how we could improve the lives of trans people in Britain, yeah. and Theresa May's government wanted to do something i suppose quite symbolic in a way that david cameron did with equal marriage to go well actually we've done something for lgbtq people yeah and they had a range of different things for example on healthcare for trans people which is the the most important thing
4: yeah i mean this
1: one doesn't cost any this one doesn't cost any money so they picked that one and that became the focus and the anti-trans people like it's just this issue we care about but then it got abandoned and they they still they just got more radicalized
4: yeah, and, and it was abandoned. I mean, the, the whole Gender Recognition Act debate thing is is a utter scandal from start to finish. I mean, we had a consultation. Scotland had two consultations. All of them were majority support. All of the big human rights groups came out in support of it. The EHRC came out in support of it. Um, when you look at the arguments, I mean, it's plain that it needs reforming. There's no actual opposition for it. If you ever ask anyone, say, what is your opposition to reforming the Gender Recognition Act? They will say, I'm concerned about men and women's spaces, but it is unrelated to women's spaces. It just isn't, um, you know, the it it doesn't affect women's spaces. It's so infuriating. And that's what the argument is. And that's why when the HR- EHRC wrote their recent thing to the Scottish government, they just said concerns because they don't have a, it will impact this legislation. It will cause this to happen. Um, yeah, it, it and it's so frustrating because the law is so terrible at the moment. Like it, when I tell people how bad it is, they're genuinely in disbelief. Um, you know, I've recently tried to apply for one of these uh, GRCs, which is what you get from this uh, Gender Recognition Act. What it does is it allows you to change your birth certificate. So I want an F on my birth certificate, which will only affect a few things. It affects marriage, death, taxes. Like a, a, it's just corner cases. I don't want to have to die and then be buried as a man and all have all of my family and friends have to listen to that and you know and the report and stuff um, and and i've had to submit 45 pages including like descriptions of my genitals and all just horrific stuff like some report commenting on my fashion choices oh, and and so we're just saying well can we not have that because it's sexist garbage it's completely out of date and then people say no we have concerns and like, well what are your concerns we have concerns what are your concerns oh we're worried about men and women's
1: spaces there's nothing to do with it um yeah sorry and i've and gone on inter- a bit of a rant there <laughs> no no it's important it's important and, it, and it's interesting yeah. because what we're talking about there uh has been in place in countries from uruguay to ireland without any yeah, problems. there's seven,
4: 17 is- other countries including argentina did over a decade ago um and so we, we can just look i mean any sensible government or equalities board that would be part of their research they would say well there are 17 other countries which already have this." law and and also that's countries that have the law there's loads of states in the usa the states in mexico um where it's a devolved issue in some countries yeah. and we could just look and see what well, well, what are the problems that have come from gender recognition act reform equivalent laws yeah. and what of the what are the benefits and it's plain to see what the benefits are because it allows trans people to have things like the right marriage certificate and the right death certificate which which is only small in comparison to you know some things because we can already um, change our passports and driving licenses without this but in some countries you can't and you can just look and see that that's a benefit you know it's just a positive impact and what are the downsides well nothing if there were downsides the gender critical movement would be constantly talking about them they'll be saying in Argentina they re- re- you know reformed their laws and now there's been a whole decade of terror of trans people I don't know destroying the fundamental structure of the universe or whatever we get accused of doing all the time but there just isn't so they just don't talk about it um and it, yeah it's just ridiculous
1: there was an interesting piece by Maria con in the new statesman in which she said feminine the title was feminism has been reduced the transgender debate she, she talks about her experience of as a cis woman who supports trans rights being abused online by yeah, one of the Just, I mean, what I have to say of of any faction I've ever come across, bear in mind, I've been beaten up by Nazis. (laughs) um, I've never come across such a pathologically obsessed group of people. Oh, it's mad. And then she talks about that. She says, you know, she says about this, the obsessiveness about them. She says, I will happily admit to being on the other side of the argument for them. But though it's an issue close to my heart, I spend a little time thinking about it. I have opinions on a wide range of topics, and this is only one of them. The same applies everyone i know who thinks the same as me even trans friends have confess confessed to not thinking about their transness all that much yeah. but he said, she says that these this other side seemingly thinks and writes about little else like like they will literally just talk like every day if you look in their Twitter feeds it's the like the world is burning yeah like there is so many injustices in the world and you know would a dead would a deadly pandemic stop their obsession well we've had that tested to no. destruction no. <laughs> I mean it's, it's, it is like QAnon. It is it, it like
4: is anti it, It's like the British QAnon um, get people getting obsessed with this idea like they, they have all these same conspiracy theories you know this idea that there are um, you know we're trying to turn children into whatever with you know experimental drugs and all this kind of thing and there's some mm. trans people working in the top organizations and they've got their um, billionaire conspiracy theories and all this kind of stuff you know built into it and it, you're right it's an obsession like When you can see this in these accounts, because sometimes you come across like, you know, someone says something racist, and you click on their account, and there'll be like some football stuff, and there'll be some like, you know, crap jokes from crap comedians or whatever. And if you get, if you see someone saying something transphobic, you click on it, and it's like every single post is transphobic conspiracy theory. No, no personality, none of their personal life comes out. Nothing. It's just, just anti-trans stuff. So was, um,
1: someone came up with a law. I can't remember who it was. A, a, a trans writer. I've forgotten who, but she she said that there's this basically when someone posts anti-trans, then that's oh, it. Oh, they never They're go never, back. Yeah, they never <laughs> go back. That, that just becomes the damn verse, and that's it.
4: Yeah, and it's definitely true. What the um can't remember the lady's name. you said uh, how feminism in the UK has kind of been absolutely plagued by this debate, and well, debate. Um, this obsession. This like cult like um. Disease that has <laughs> spread in the UK, um, because there are all these other women's issues going on. You know, there is loads of stuff. The, the government's cut funding for women's services, and we've had this ho- horrific Sarah Everard case, and all of these other things. And no one's talking about them, and you don't get time to talk about them. And when I do post about them, which you know, I I make noise about this stuff all the time, there will still be some transphobe or post underneath. And, like recently, there was a thing where the government was considering. Um, removing access for post-home pills for an abortion Um, and that's that would be a bad thing if they blocked that and so me and you know some of my feminist friends on Twitter were making noise about that and a load of transphobes started replying being like doesn't affect you anyway why do you care doesn't affect you and like so I care about it because Mm. I'm a feminist Um, but also all of these gender-critical people they claim to be feminists uh, and they don't ever talk about any feminist issues, and you can see this from the leaders of the organize, the, you know the, the gender critical thought leaders. They only ever talk about trans stuff. All of these women's organizations that they've recently set up, uh, like Fair Play for Women, don't talk about any women's issues at all, apart from when they can make it about trans people. The politicians they have, they recently had some um, amendment to the Police Crimes and Sentencing Sentencing Bill, where they were trying to tack on something which would force all uh, trans women in prisons into men's prisons um and they argued about that for like 90 minutes at midnight and the same people all of the people who were pushing for that to be put on voted against um like giving extra investigative powers in the sarah everard case uh and voted against all of the other things that were pro women's rights mm. like none nothing none mm. of the, these people uh, a, a feminist or pro feminist at all, um, and they're not pushing anything that's good for women. And and every time you try and do something that is good for women or talk about it, they change the subject onto trans people and some conspiracy theory about men and toilets. Like, it's I, so tedious.
1: Just very lastly, it is striking, isn't it, that. This is, I mean, the Council of Europe. I meant we started by talking about the Council of Europe and how they place Britain in the same category as deeply reactionary yeah. places on social issues. To, like, to be
4: uh, fair, though, they did like high. Like Hungary is horrific for LGBT rights, particularly trans people. Like you know, uh, Chechnya is absolutely terrible. So the UK is slipping, but I wouldn't yeah. want to say we're of course, as bad. Of as, and that, yeah.
1: because in Hungary, in Hungary, the regime there, which is essentially a dictatorship, yeah. used COVID uh, to. The crisis to do an emergency decree, essentially abolishing the right to be trans. Yeah, that <laughs> was no... the first thing they did. First <laughs> thing they were like, "There's a pandemic. Oh, uh, <laughs> let's abolish trans people." Um, just lastly, though, the the, the Seamus point, though, that notwithstanding, it's an important caveat you made there.
4: Yeah,
1: it is hate crimes against LGBTQ people are growing in this country. For homophobic, um, sorry, anti-LGBTQ hate crimes, homophobic hate crimes have uh, trebled. Transphobic uh, hate crimes have quadrupled and we've seen recently for example this case, a horrific case of Dr Gary Jenkins, a bisexual man in Cardiff who was brutally murdered. The fact is it is dangerous to have the main civil rights organisation Stonewall hounded in the media denounced and all the rest of it and general vitriolic stuff about LGBTQ rights movement and all the rest of it, at the same time these hate crimes are growing that's dangerous.
4: Yeah and it's it is all linked, I mean it i just feel like we're living through a trans panic and we had a gay panic you know a couple of decades ago and there's always been other panics there's always a panic about civil rights movements and there was like the satanic panic which was like you know the sort of um template for this kind of thing and you have these big moral panics and all the media goes in on it they make up stories and then all of the politicians start reacting to it because people start getting radicalized and then you end up with things like this where the ehrc is just like now anti lgbt and all of the big lgbt organizations have had to cut ties with them um yeah it's and and that of course when it's constantly in the media and they're constantly selling this idea of like you know perverted men are trying to go into your changing rooms with your daughter or something of course that results in more crimes you know that this whole thing uh, this isn't like some conspiracy oh it's all linked like of mm-hmm. course anti lgbt sentiment in politics and in the media results in violence. I mean, obviously.
1: Katie, it's been such an honor to have you as always. Uh Kate, with
4: me?
1: Uh, say that again. Thanks for having me. Sorry. Always sorry. <laughs> I don't know, I just, I'm struggling today. Look look at me. I'm a mess. <laughs> uh, do follow Katie. I uh, look up Katie Montgomery on social media and also her brilliant YouTube channel as well. Uh, she's a superstar. Just a brilliant person to follow on twitter because thank you transphobes are so miserable on twitter they're so miserable and dour and uh there's no reason why people on the receiving end of their bile should be funny about taking them yeah, on if
4: you, if you need to see them okay, be dunked on yeah yeah come, it's come just get... funny.
1: It's just, they're funny. <laughs> they're just funny dunks on transphobes uh but kenny it's been such an honor uh and sue i can't wait eventually to take we should go for drinks
4: yeah that would be amazing definitely can't wait! Let's do it. We can all do right. an even go, go. more hungover show next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we
1: can just do it. Just drinking. <laughs> um, all right, Katie. Lots of love. Yeah. Bye.
4: Bye.
1: Right. right. I'm going to bring in straight away because we've overrun, which is very rude when we leave people waiting like this. The brilliant Manisha. Hey, Manisha. So, so sorry. It's so lucky it's to right. have you. No A brilliant, brilliant author, by the way. Um, do look up her multiple brilliant books. Um. Now. Misha, I am so glad that we can do this and talk about this and talk about the truth here because I've not been, I've just been, had a ringside seat of the saga of surrounding, I don't want to call it the Kate Clancy affair because actually the whole point about what you and others were doing was trying to broaden this conversation to the problem of the publishing industry, which is very, very white and riddled with institutional racism. Kate Clancy was a striking. Uh, case study. Now, I just want to bring in, before I, I speak to Manish, uh, to ask questions to Manish, just so everyone's aware of what happened, because I think this is, as I've said, such an important uh, point. So, here we go. I'm going to bring up some tweets by Kate Clanchy, where she says, sorry to whinge on Goodreads. Goodreads is a website people know where people review books. Someone made up a racist quote and said it was in my book. Other reviewers picked it up and repeated it. I've flagged the reviews many times, but it does no good. Today, I got my first email threat based on it. Is there anything I can do? And then she says, another tweet, flag the reviews. None of these terms in my book. It's all made up. There's a slight problem here. These racist comments, descriptions, and not just racist, classist, and all the rest of it. And we'll talk, I'll, I'll, I'll put these to Manisha. They were in her book. Like, no, she didn't, the reviewer didn't make them up at all. That did, never happened. And so she piled on, she piled on this reviewer. This reviewer then wrote saying, over a series of months since I posted this review, the author has threatened to contact my employer and she's orchestrated her followers on Twitter to comment on it, report it, and contact Goodreads, et cetera. She's accused me of defamation and abuse although now all the comments have gone. The quotes I've given, obviously, from the book, and some are available online as PQ, so it's baffling to me why Kate denies all of them. The public accusation from Kate, I've organised a pylon with friends, is untrue. This was my honest review and was completely unrelated to any other reviews this book has received. Rather, I would hope that Kate and people who read this book without criticism can take some time to reflect on the racism, Xenophobia, anti Semitism, fat phobia, transphobia, and classism, which run through the book. We are all continuously learning, but we must address our behaviors and be willing to do the work rather than deny them. Lastly, despite the threats, I will not take down my review. I feel and, and I felt and feel it was important to speak up for the young people that I believe this book lets down. This is incredible. So, a reviewer highlighted actual passages from her book. Kate Clanchy piled on the reviewer, said they were made up. And yet, Kate Clanchy is the victim. Just tell us a bit more about this because I literally cannot believe it.
5: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you.
0: Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
3: Do you know what, Owen? Just hearing you say it back like that and just telling me again what happened, um, I can't help but laugh about it because it is so absolutely ludicrous. And I never imagined that it would play out the way that it did because it was so stuck. It was so clear from the very beginning to anyone who had seen what had happened. What had taken place from the very word go, the first person to call Kate Clanchy's writing racist was Kate Clanchy. She saw the words. She took them as racist and she called them out as racist. She did. Not us. she did. And then when she was challenged on it, when I think I I don't even know who it was. I saw somebody else on social media replied with big screenshots from her book saying, but aren't these all in your book? She then replied and said, well, you need to read them all in context. And so four days after this happened, this was around the 31st of July, on the 4th of August, I checked my old tweets. I then saw this and I downloaded the book. I didn't have any intention of commenting on something that I was not informed about. I downloaded the book. I spent the entire morning reading it from start to finish. And I was absolutely horrified by the second page that this had gone through an agent that it had gone through an editor, that it had gone through proofreaders, that it went through publishers, that it went through judges at the Orwell Prize, and not one person had called out what was written in the book. And so I then began to have a discussion with Professor Sunny Singh and Shimen Suleiman, who had also seen this conversation taking place. Now, in that four-day space, numerous people had commented. Many, many people had highlighted segments on racism. They'd highlighted segments where autism children are referred to as jarring company where she talks about leaving two of them to do a task because she knows that they will do it undisturbed until she comes back and she writes this is fun there were comments about children with mongolian ferocity there was enormous amount of sexualization of children and that's where i then stepped in because i found it incredible that she had said you need to read these quotes in context And when I did read them in context, they were actually worse. Mm -hmm. Um, There is one comment about a child having a fine Ashkenazi nose. Now, a number of people actually said, well, I have a fine Ashkenazi nose and I'm proud of it. But that wasn't what she was saying. She was disputing that a child called David Marks was Jewish. She challenged him on it. And she said she was baffled that he said he had no Jewish heritage, despite having black hair and a fine Ashkenazi nose. And the child said, I'm not Jewish, but she insisted that he must be because of his physical features. And that to me was incredibly problematic. And so I began to discuss this as a trio. And we went back and forth highlighting bits of the book that we found quite troubling. We had no issue with Clancy personally, but to us, her book was simply, as you'd said, symptomatic of how publishing is today. It's very white, it's very upper middle class, it's very nepotistic, and there are so few ethnic minorities or neurodivergent, or just marginalized communities working in publishing, that we were trying to point out that this is how books like this slip through the net. And we talked about it, we commented on it. And then of course the articles just started to appear about how she'd been piled on, how she'd been abused. We were called harassers, abusers, a lynch mob. um, And it just spiraled from there. And it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking to see because we were only three of a huge swathe of people who were commenting on the book. There was a a child author who's autistic who had found segments of the book and put them up saying that he was sickened by them and felt so ill that he had to step away from social media and his mum had to take over his account because he had so much abuse. Mm. Um, He wasn't mentioned anywhere. It was just three women of colour who were hauled up and called the abusers. Um, something else that the press had completely ignored is the fact that hundreds and hundreds of teachers, head teachers, governors, and other educationists have signed an open letter to Picador highlighting their concerns about safeguarding around the book, which is a legality when you're writing about children. And that just went completely ignored. Everything in every article that was written was about her being cancelled and piled on and abused by us. And we were named and to this point there have been almost 34 articles written about us radio programs discussing us with not a single person wanting to get our side of the story um with the exception of the guardian who within two or three days of this all kicking off wrote to me saying we've been following this from the start we're absolutely horrified by the way this narrative is playing out and we think that you need to have your side of the story and I was exhausted by this point. I was absolutely drained. I'd had racist abuse on social media. I'd had racist abuse through my website. My husband was fielding my emails. Um, I was trying to work in a full time job and manage a three year old and a one year old. I was in tears quite regularly seeing people talking about me. Um, I had screenshots from a friend from Facebook where he showed me a number of white women authors talking about the cesspit on twitter and how it had turned into a snake pit because of people bullying poor kate clanchy and one of them was actually a former employer of mine and she said well yes i know i gave her <coughs> her first job and she suffered tremendous racist abuse there and another author commented saying well i don't believe anybody should suffer racist abuse but if she's one of those hounding clinchy then she should know that paying it forward is not the right thing to do And this was all quite shocking for me to see. And I was getting screenshots from people left, right, and center about people discussing it um, I tried to log off. Um, I had emails from friends in the US. I had WhatsApps from friends in New Zealand saying, are you okay? And it was impossible to step away from it. It was really hard to think that just by critiquing a book that was in the public domain, we were now being deemed as abusive and mm-hmm. harassing. And it was, was deeply troubling to actually see it happen um and i think for me the thing that has been most upsetting about all of this is that children were the center of this this wasn't fiction this wasn't book of fiction this wasn't anybody policing anyone's imagination these were real children who were put in the care of somebody who was trusted and they were written about in a way that laid bare all of the things that children often feel very vulnerable about. And when I read that book and I read about a young girl with facial hair and furry eyebrows and I think the words are a distinct mustache. Um, I found myself welling up remembering how I had felt like that at school. Yeah.
1: Hey Major, this is this is very sorry oh, just... No 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 this is this is incredibly incredibly difficult for you to so
3: really hard it now. and i and i just sat there thinking i don't want i don't want my children i've got two mixed race children i don't want my children being written about like this of course. i don't want anybody's children being written about this um i have a nephew who's um got asd and i know how hard his parents have been fighting for his school to treat him as an equal and i read those passages and i teared up and i just found the whole book so difficult to read and in fact, this morning, I have a friend who's been rereading the original copy for me. And she said that she's been feeling suicidal over the last few days because it's reminded her of how she was bullied at school and all the things that made her absolutely hate herself. And I told her to just throw it to one side and just forget about it and go watch some Netflix. Um, but I think what people have just obscured so much in all the articles that have been written about this and, and even said, you know, oh, but 25 of her children have written in her defense. It's just 25. She's taught a lot more than 25 children. And I have seen children actually write to to her on her Twitter saying, I didn't like the way that you wrote about me. But she's ignored those. And those children have just been swept under the carpet. And also a lot of those children um, didn't even feature in the book. They're just children whose poetry she she has published. And I want to make something really clear. And I said this in my Guardian piece back in August. None of us had any issue with Anything that Clancy has done with students in terms of poetry, the anal- the, all the anthologies she's published, all the work she's done with them, mm-hmm. is very commendable. We have no problem with that. We still don't. And it is, I personally think it's quite sad that those books aren't available right now, but I'm very certain someone will pick them up. To me, the problem was that one book and the way that those children were written about. Mm-hmm. And that's something that has also just been completely ignored and now it's about the children being silenced the narrative is now that the children's poetry has been cancelled the children are now being silenced by us Um, and that's absolutely not the case the fact that the books are not available anymore is simply a very straightforward result of when you part ways with the publisher your rights are returned it's as simple as that you have the rights back you've not been cancelled you've just been given back the rights and you have the rights again to give to another publisher and, and, and she has got another publisher, Swift Publishing, is now doing her book. Her, her latest book uh-huh. is already available in the book. It's never been out of print. Uh-huh. It has been available consistently throughout uh-huh. the time that she has said she's been cancelled. Uh-huh. The book was available when she was doing interviews, people could still buy it. And the book's going to be published again in, in paperback soon, as will the poetry at some point. So, this idea that she's been cancelled is simply false.
1: I should say, by the way, Manisha, I'm really in awe of your courage because this isn't easy to talk about at all. You've gone through a a really grim experience and it is shocking, is the gaslighting and all the rest of it. And I think, and I'll ask you towards the end about just shortly about um, the wider point about the publishing industry, the systemic racism with it, because the point you made about you and others who have these obviously understandable visceral responses because you've endured this sort of racist abuse, from a very early age is there wasn't anyone who'd had those experiences reading these passages. Since, and then obviously a problem would be flagged. These were all white privileged people who, and you know, this point, you know, almond yeah. eyes, chocolate colored skin, fine Askenazi nose, Mongolian ferocity, big Afghan nose. Like the, and, and the point you made is the first person who publicly, in a sense, other than the viewer said, these were racist. were Kate Clancy herself. So just on that, the, the facts. That defenders of her book refused to acknowledge anything wrong, mm. even when presented with screenshots and quotes, and then how fast the media closed ranks and protected her. We've got here, for example, the Times, Kate Clancy, We Teachers are tough, but being cancelled pushed me to the edge, abandoned by her publisher. The author reveals the agony of seeing a Twitter storm destroy her career. As you said, this I've been silenced tour, it's a classic genre. It's uh it's where someone says, I've been silenced, I've been cancelled on the bb as they say that on the bbc in on, on radio interviews in, in, in repeated interviews in the press features comment pieces all coming to her rescue as she says i'm being silenced i mean that's the point isn't it i mean what that what does that say yeah. about the media closing ranks and about how the defenders just don't even though kate clancy herself was originally shocked that anyone would suggest these things could be written by her because they were so
3: awful that's also ludicrous also what's in the last week that has come out that is very ludicrous as well is the fact that she said she was cancelled but equally in the sunday times interview that she gave said that she found the rewriting process cathartic and that she enjoyed being able to edit the book and since all of this has happened big chunks have been taken out of the book the bits about the autistic children have gone the bits about the Ashkenazi nose have gone, the chocolate colored skin, I don't know about the small skulls, the narrow skulls, the large skulls, the Mongolian ferocity, or the bits about how a child who was a rape survivor ha- was being talked about in the room as having you know, lost her looks since it happened. I don't know if any of those things have come out of the book, but they were, they were horrifying and she's taken them out, which mm-hmm. to me suggests that if you did take them out, then we were right to have highlighted these things so either you've been cancelled or you've learned from the process and you've edited the book accordingly but it can't be both Mm. of those things choose one which one is it the fact
1: that Clancy has been afforded this backstory about how awful the things she's gone through in her life and how and i'm not here to denigrate that like you know people do go through terrible terrible experiences and it's not even when people do things which are wrong, it's not to not show empathy and love and compassion to people. But the point is that's been showcased in her case, but when it comes to you and other women of color who spoke out about this, you haven't been afforded that.
3: No, we're just this one dimensional monolith of aggression um, with absolutely no, we just weren't afforded the same kind of humanity that she was. And, we really suffered, um, and I can't speak for—I I won't speak for them because it's not fair. But I suffered enormously in August. I was ill for a couple of weeks. Um, it's the closest I've come to thinking about self-harming in almost five years. Um, I had to go to my GP and talk about it. I've started therapy again um, because it's very hard to see your name being dragged through the dirt by somebody um, who is profiting off the back of that and you know, I, I, I was working full time, I have small children, and I had to just shut down my laptop and smile at them and pretend that nothing was happening. And they were so aware that I was unhappy. And right. it had a huge impact on my family and mm. my extended family as well, who are hearing from other people. I, I kept it from them. I always keep these things from yeah. them. I don't want to upset them. But then other people tell them. And my mum called up and said, I've just been on the phone to someone who interviewed me, a friend of yours. And she said that she's really proud of you for what you're going through what on earth is happening my heart just sank and i thought god i don't want to have to talk to you about this and upset you um but it was so far reaching and it's distracting more than anything you know we don't enjoy doing this and i think this is what people don't understand we hate we hate viscerally hate seeing racism hearing racism and then having to call it out and talk about it it's so physically draining and I want to spend time with my kids i want to be doing coloring with them and doing jigsaws and talking to my husband and making dinner i've you know shimane wants to be working on her book she's got a fantastic book that's coming out soon um professor singh wants to be working with her students and traveling to brazil to visit her family she doesn't want to be doing these things um any more than you know you want to be talking about homophobia explaining it to people and telling them why you're a human being on their level and ought not to be written about in this way and That's all it is for us. It's just we're not a big group of woke karate or, you know, abusers or a lynch mob. All people are saying is, please stop writing about us this way. Stop writing about us like this. Stop writing about our children like this. Don't look at our communities in this way and use our communities as a way to challenge, you know, your own bigotries, because that's what the book was. It was essentially she was trying to use these children as a vehicle to challenge her own prejudices. And to me that's not okay you that's not what children are for children are not there to teach you how to get over your own bigotry especially not ethnic minority refugee children um and one of the biggest things that has come out of this for me is the fact that they you know a lot of people have said you know that the children's agency is being ignored the children have a right to say that they support their teacher and of course they do they absolutely do Um, and the the student who wrote saying I'm I'm the student with the almond eyes and she described me beautifully she then does say in the next paragraph I wouldn't dare to talk about other students on their behalf and that's been obscured as well Um, but also when you're a child your dynamic the power dynamic between a teacher and a child is so different from that dynamic when you then think back to it 25 years later and I, when I was reading that book, started to think of so many white middle-class teachers I had in Yorkshire in the 80s. And I started to remember things they'd said to me as a child, um, singling me out, calling my parents up to tell them that I was aggressive, um, that I was a liar. Um, and I started to see them for what they were. And it's taken me 25 years to do that. And I am in no way disparaging what those children have said and some of them may well say in 25 years time that they still stand by everything that she said, and that's fine. But it's a very relevant point that people do take a while to process when something has happened to you. And when you ask someone at the time whether or not they feel good about it, they might tell you that they do. Maybe it could be out of fear. It could be out of any reason, a loyalty, Um, but also specifically ethnic minority children. In in Asia specifically, and I know this from being from an Indian household, teachers are revered. are placed next to god academia is next to godliness and you are made to respect your teachers in the way that you respect your parents and your elders so to ever go against that or to see them in any other light is very unusual when you're young
1: just finally the point about the publishing industry this is a point all of you were trying to raise Mm. attention towards the fact is i mean look i work in the british media as well and if you look at the demographics of the national media according to the government's own statistics, and I think this links very much to the points you're making about the media closing ranks, because mm. what the statistics show about the national media is that it it's only medicine um, is less socially exclusive, uh, sorry, more socially exclusive than, than the media in terms of parental backgrounds. <laughs> um, Repeated studies have shown that people of color are woefully underrepresented within the media particularly in position you know when you go higher up but reporters and so on as well um and that's also in the publishing industry so anyone who's there's quite quite a funny video going on recently of uh, uh a guy's working class writer saying um if you wanna uh, if his advice to working class writers he sort of face solemnly and he goes,
3: Oh, i saw it yes yeah he
1: Hurrah, he says, everyone says hurrah, just don't, go with it, don't get angry or defensive, soon you'll find yourself saying it. But he was just making it, I mean, it is a very, very posh yeah, industry. It's really, it's really true. But I think, so, um, yeah, go on. Sorry, some,
3: someone asked me the other day, one, one of my best friends from school actually said, would you do this again? And I did have to sort of pause for thought, um, but actually, I would, because I have so many dms on twitter and emails through my website from young people working in the publishing industry people at picador people at bloomsbury people at penguin people at random house writing to me saying thank you for what three of you did i can't say anything publicly because i'm really scared about losing my job and i feel really grateful to be here but it really helped seeing you three do what you did because now i feel a little bit More bold to be able to say something in the future. We're too scared because we're bullied by authors or editors or anyone within publishing. And I still haven't even responded to all of the ones that are backed up since August. And it was heartening in one sense, but also really deeply depressing that people are feeling like that. But I spoke out because I feel like I've reached a point in my career where it's not going to suffer if I say what I do. I have a really strong agent behind me. My editor at Bloomsbury is a lovely person who fully backed everything that happened. Bloomsbury have been really solid behind all of this. And I don't feel like my career could be impacted by this, but mm-hmm. I know that younger people would. And five years ago, I wouldn't have said anything. I'd have been far too frightened to say anything about this at all. But I feel now that because I have this position and I've got this privilege and this platform, that I have to use it in the right way. and while obviously I wouldn't have it play out the way that it did, um, I'm not going to stop doing this. I'm not going to stop calling this out because I don't want other people to have to go through this again. And I don't want children to be written about like this again. Um, I also don't want any of the next generation to be having these discussions um, and being distracted from their work because all of this is distraction. And I don't, I want people in 10 or 15 years time to just be doing their work and getting on with things and not being sidetracked by these conversations where essentially all you're doing is trying to say, I'm as human as you, please talk about me and write about me and treat me that way. I have to say Manisha, just, just
1: to, to finish up, I, I'm really in awe, as I've said, of your of your courage, of your determination. You and the others you mentioned have gone through a huge amount, for, you did nothing wrong, nothing wrong. Um, it's, it's shocking oh. how the media and elites in particular have mm-hmm. closed ranks Around her, rather than supporting voices like yourself, and it is one of these incidents, or or kind of, I don't know, what to describe it, um, sagas where history will look back and go, "Wow, you know, this was just shows how this is, you, know, you know, you know, when we look back at thirty years, it varies incidents and sagas that happen, and it's very revealing about." dynamic power dynamics at the time and how far things had to go. And this just shows, you know, this just shows the huge problems of systemic racism within the media, within the publishing industry about who is treated as the victim, um, who is martyred as a consequence, who is vilified. Um, but there's no question that because of your efforts, this will help empower other people to speak out and it's important that allies speak out to support you and the others. Um but this will have a big impact. I and, and I think you should be so proud of that. So it's such an honor to be able to talk to you about about the truth of what happened.
3: Thank you. Thank you. G- genuinely thank you for letting one of us actually have our say and I I I really do feel like that something huge has lifted off me to be able to talk to someone who's not out to stitch me up or <laughs> to to uh convey something other than what happened so yeah thank you very much
1: for that it's good just to just to speak about the truth and that's what we try to do today so lots of love manisha take thank care you. Thank you. take care bye bye thank you
3: so much bye
1: um so brilliant to have manisha there to talk about actually what really happened and again look the media in this country has they're, they're a brilliant journalist they do brilliant work exposing injustice uh you know speaking truth to power but there's a systemic problem within the media industry as well as the publishing industry. Uh, this should have been a clear cut case in terms of what actually happened. Uh, Kit Clancy wasn't the victim in this. And it's so important that whilst the voices that need to be elevated, as in this case, are people of color who are speaking about their lived experiences, uh, that others speak out and be allies, amplify their voices. That's the only way we're gonna get change. So. The media have failed woefully, as you might expect in these particular cases, uh, generally, but I'm glad we've happened to give a platform and a megaphone to explain what really happened and the wider significance. Now we're gonna end with, something like a bit light hearted. We've just thrown it into the, so we've not not had time to edit it in properly, but just to cheer us all up. It's been a long week. I don't know how you felt. Let's have a little look at this this comedy. This is a great comedy skit. Just brace yourself. I think the actor playing the minister is a bit hammy. I just think it's a bit over the top. I think maybe if she toned it down, it'd be more realistic. It's just heavy handed satire. Let's have a look.
6: Have you spoken to the prime minister recently in the last 24 hours?
7: Why? Why are you asking me that question? I'd like to know. Um, uh, on, we've We've communicated. This,
6: I'm, not, I'm really confused. Is that a difficult question? I'm just asking if you've spoken to the Prime Minister in the last 24 hours.
7: We have communicated.
6: OK. What has he communicated to you?
7: Well, that's, that's, I'm not going to tell you the extent of my communications with the Prime Minister. I mean, I've answered your question. We have communicated. What is your next question? What's his mood? I'd say his mood was um, very very uh, positive, extremely positive. I mean, onwards is one of his favourite expressions. I think he's very positive. Has he changed? Changed what? His attitude.
6: To what? To the way he runs the government. We're told that he sent out messages saying that... I remember the quote him saying in the comments, I've got it, I get this about things that have been done wrong. And the implication was that he was gonna do business slightly differently. Indeed, he sent a letter to backbench MPs saying there's gonna be more interaction. So my question is a pretty fundamental one, which is the impression we're supposed to take now that Boris Johnson admits that things should have been done differently. And I think that's his words, and I'm not trying to change any meanings around that. The implication of that is somehow a different Boris Johnson is emerging. Is he
7: exactly the same in your book? So your question was actually very open-ended and non-specific. But what I would say is that the Prime Minister, when he appeared before the 22 Committee last week, promised change. And I think uh, I think anybody who picks up a newspaper or reads a newspaper, receives a television news bulletin, can see that a huge amount of change is underway at present, particularly in Number 10. MPs want... <laughs>
1: It was actually funnier. That's like the fiftieth time I've watched it. It's still funny. It's just Chef's Kisses. As I've said, a bit hammy. I I think I think satire needs some subtlety to it, which that is lacking. I don't think anyone could accuse accuse that of of. um... (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm actually just. I just need to compose myself. Oh my word, she's the culture secretary. She's a cabinet minister, but she actually has a lot of power. I mean, including over the BBC. She's in charge of the that whole sector, culture, media, and sport. Oh, I just don't even, I've been on TV a lot with Nadine Dorries. I have do get on well with her personally, but I'm often too nice for my own good, despite the way I'm sometimes portrayed. I just—I mean, just every interview they keep sending her out. I don't—I mean, if they focus creeped it, is it maybe it's going down well? Maybe I'm completely out of touch. Maybe there are people out there who who watch that and think. Do you know what? I thought Boris Johnson was a lying snake who has systematically broken the law whilst we were forced to abide by the laws that he was in charge of drawing up and enforcing and communicating. We couldn't hold hands with our dying relatives. We watched them buried on Zoom. We couldn't see our loved ones. Eight million of us live alone and had often crippling moments of loneliness. There were homeless people being charged into lockdown measures. There were children being fined illegally for breaking those lockdown measures. There were park benches being taped up so people couldn't sit on them. There were children's playgrounds which were cordoned off so kids couldn't use them. There were people sitting down, having a beer in parks and being told to move by the police, whilst Boris Johnson and his cabal were getting absolutely battered in the Hacienda on Thames. That was number 10. But do you know what? I've just seen Nadine Doris on national television putting the other side of the story, and I take it all back hes They've done nothing wrong. Why would the media leave them alone? I just don't. I mean, just the times we live in, because we've gone through so much over the last few years, and I think we've become slightly numb. Like, do you remember with Donald Trump? At first, the idea of Donald Trump was president was like, uh, just like we've entered some sort of completely unhinged universe. Uh, You know, and and the first times he started tweeting, just, you know, you just were like, I literally cannot believe this happened. They just washed over you, just washed over you because it became so normalized. And I think sometimes that's the danger with this particular administration, this this parody, I mean, just this surreal farce, which is technically called Her Majesty's Government, is you just, it just, occasionally you just forget how ludicrous things are. It was Lewis Goodall, the BBC, who tried to put it all in context, which was, you know, there's no, just thinking about what's actually happening at the moment, where you've got the the, the, the director of uh, policy at number 10 resigning because, supposedly, you know, Mirza, uh, resigning because Boris Johnson used cases of child sex abuse, Jimmy Savile, to score political points falsely, as it turned out, um, against... Keir Starmer, I say supposedly because Minira Mirza has worked for Boris Johnson for 14 years. And the idea is she suddenly all of a sudden went, oh, do you know what? I thought Boris Johnson was this top, totally other level guy. I It's so out of character that he would just lie uh, for political gain. So I, I, that's enough for me. I'm out of here. You know, she... You know, Boris Johnson, the man who caused a spike in anti-Muslim hate crimes when he called Muslim women bank robbers and letterboxes and uh, described piccaninnies with watermelon smiles and talked about gay people as tank-top bum boys. Oh, I cannot believe he has behaved like this. I'm out. But, you know, his staff all resigning, his former chief advisor, literally on a obsessive mission to destroy him. The guy who actually put him there as prime minister... All by the while, while he's being investigated by the police, supposedly, because the Metropolitan Police decided not to do anything for several weeks, before all of a sudden, at the exact moment where they completely jeopardised and gutted a report into the multiple parties that took place, um, all of a sudden. But nonetheless, he is being investigated by the police, and there is an official inquiry going on. I mean, it's just so ludicrous. And obviously, we should be angry about the fact that what's undoing this guy is the fact him and his... Close advisors were getting absolutely smashed in number 10, while people were often going through the loneliest experiences um, of their lives during a deadly pandemic which killed 150,000 people. And that's what we should be angry about. The fact tens of thousands of avoidable deaths isn't what's taking this guy down. About the corruption involving PPE contracts, for example. Like there were so many bigger reasons, actually, as angry as we should be about the fact that it's one rule for those at the top and one rule for everybody else. But honestly, it, 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 it just. It, it it's so, just so many details which makes it hard to compute. But we are ruled by, and this is a really important last point, and I wrote about this in The Guardian. It's really important, however ludicrous this all is, and watching that interview, it's just, I mean, you got to laugh um, otherwise, <laughs> uh, is that he shouldn't be seen as an aberration, you know, because that's what's going to happen now. All these people he put in there... All these people, Theresa May, because Theresa May, oh, Theresa May got up and she, yes, Queen, when she said Boris Johnson, um, you know, either he didn't understand the rules uh, or didn't think the rules applied to him. Everyone's like, wow, what a burn from Theresa May. Theresa May, also a lying politician who uh, lied uh, about migrants to build her political career, including once claiming that a uh, a. a, a um, Uh, An illegal immigrant couldn't be deported because he had a cat, not true. Uh, That's how she became Prime Minister, by that kind of uh, vitriolic rhetoric about often completely voiceless people. And then she made Boris Johnson Foreign Secretary. She made him Britain's face to the world. She helped build up his political career. And now she's like, oh, God, Boris Johnson, look how terrible he is. Oh, I never saw that one coming all these people, these pundits, these MPs who made him prime minister, knowing he's a liar, knowing he's cl- completely unfit, you know, for, for, for office, that you wouldn't trust him to, you know, I certainly would not trust him to look after my cats, uh, you know, just, just a, a, a completely on his own terms, ludicrously unfit person for any form of office whatsoever, who's always fallen upwards, someone sacked twice, for lying. And now all of a sudden, they're like, oh my word, Boris Johnson, is so terrible. Who could have ever seen that coming? And, you know, going back to 2019, there was a choice. And whatever people think about Jeremy Corbyn and the disagreements or whatever, and he did get things wrong, written about things he got wrong. But honestly, look at what you have inflicted. Look at what you, you, all these people trying to wash their hands, they made this happen. And this guy sums up the British establishment. He sums up a British establishment that lies and cheats and thinks rules apply to other people. This is a, a, the same British establishment which had politicians milking the expenses system as they pontificated about benefit cheats who need to be locked up, and they because they thought state money, you see, they thought they deserved it. Oh, we're politicians; we're not being paid enough, so we'll just take some extra. And you know, some of them went to prison. Not very many. Most of them got some embarrassing headlines and then carried on with their political careers. You know, it's the same with tax avoidance, 23 times more likely, I think, was it 12 12 or? Anyway, a lot, many more times likely to be prosecuted for benefit fraud than tax fraud, even though tax fraud causes a much bigger loss of money to the state than benefit fraud. You know, about because again, it's this idea that the state exists to crack down on people who are powerless rather than the powerful, who don't think the rules apply to them. It's the same, you know, in America, they locked up quite a lot of bankers. Not so here. Those bankers who plunged the country into calamity, very few consequences. Many of them record, you know, huge bonuses, making more money than ever. Nothing has happened to them. This is, a, you know, the Metropolitan Police, there we go again. You know, they think they can get away with anything because they have. We did a whole show on it last week. Cressida Dick, who oversaw the operation It was John Charles Menenez was shot repeatedly in the head. Innocent man, where the police lied about him over and over again. Like they lied about Ian Tomlinson, who died after being battened by a police officer at a G20 demonstration. And then the police just fed a load of lies saying, oh, we tried, he, died, he had a heart attack and we tried to save him. But protesters pelted him, pelted us with bricks and sticks to stop us. Lies. These are powerful people. You know, it's to say, again, you know, that the war on drugs, politicians take drugs and they've all admitted to it. No consequences for them. Poor black kids, life-changing convictions. You know, what Boris Johnson has done isn't actually that exceptional. It's completely consistent with how the British establishment operate in this country. This is how they operate. They just don't think rules apply to them. They think they apply to the little guys. They think the state should crack down hard. On the misdemeanors of the poor, but they think that the establishment should just stuff its pockets full of public money, willy nilly. Because of course, whether it be benef- whether it be the expenses scandal, or whether it be the banks who were bailed out by public money with nothing expected in return after causing ruin from which we are still suffering the consequences of to this very day. So when Boris Johnson designed those rules, looked down the barrel of a camera, told the public solemnly to abide by those rules for the good of the nation whilst actually in practice going, well, I'm not going to abide by them. <laughs> You're joking. On my birthday, I'm going to go and get pissed. Um, well, they all partied. You know, I mean, you know, people say, but on the eve of the GK vendors funeral. But, you know, I'm more angry about the fact that you had NHS staff who were working all the time uh, in hugely pressurized circumstances. What, were they having little gatherings for people's birthdays, getting pissed? No, they were not. They were overwhelmed because the Tories have deprived them of resources, underpaid them, imposed on nurses, real terms pay cuts, even after the pandemic. And then locked down too slowly and all the rest of it. So they were overwhelmed. They weren't partying, but the people at number 10 were, because they don't think the rules apply to them, because they're powerful people, you see. Powerful people. They don't know. They don't have rules. The rules exist for everybody else, apart from the powerful. Anyway. Sorry, had to get that out of my system. Um, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, the Z Doris thing was a bit of comic relief at least. I'm gonna go and watch that again and uh, get on with my life. I um, We do now, I do need to finish my book, uh, which I have now mostly done because I went to Barcelona to do it, uh, that we will phase back into normal service. We're doing a documentary this month. You have to decide what the documentary is on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones uh, later today. I'm going to do a post asking people for ideas. All the documentaries we've done are ideas which people have suggested to us, so we're going to keep doing that. Um, And we're going to do lots of interviews and all the rest of it. But that is enough for me. Um, Thank you so much to our brilliant guest, Ben, uh, to Katie, to Manisha. They were all absolutely fantastic, um, as you would expect. Um, And I'm glad we covered things which other organizations should be covering, but they aren't because because of problems. Um, Lots of love, everybody. Be back live next Sunday, but we've got lots of things. Um, People are yelling at me to finish the book. I am going to finish the book. I like my mom and my editors. Um, I'm off to write my book now. Lots of love, everyone. Take care. See you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting. And I certainly did. Uh, Do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash OrangeJones84. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.
6: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcast?